Let's take our Bibles and go to the Old Testament in the book of Judges. As we walk through the book of Judges on Sunday morning, we come to a project that for most young guys growing up in the church, this is your guy. Project Beast Mode, Mr. Samson. How many of you have ever seen a children's book to where Samson looks like a normal guy? If you raise your hand, you've probably confused him with somebody else. Samson is the Schwarzenegger of the Bible. He is the Old Testament Terminator. He's the one that everyone looks to and raises up on a pedestal when they think of what it means to be in the words of the 1978 classic that probably never should have been written by the village people, a macho, macho man. I just want to be a macho man. Some of y'all know the words, but you think it's a sin to say it in church. You don't want me to call you out. What does it mean to be a man of strength? And we're going to look at God's Word and to see this main idea, this driving thought opened up before us and it's kind of one of those Debbie Downer, those, those types of things where you say, well, where is the hope in this? We will get to it. But the life of Samson lets us know one thing that is very true, and that destroying your life, me destroying my life, is very easy. Have you noticed that it's more difficult to serve Jesus than just to float with the rest of the dead fish going down the stream? Have you noticed that yet, church? Destroying our lives is pretty easy. Here's how you do it. In case you came to church this morning saying, I wonder how I can make my life more difficult than it already is. All that you have to do is just do what comes natural. When there is an impulse and a desire, you simply do, in the words of the culture, do whatever feels good. In fact, do it more than once. The culture says that following your desires leads to happiness and pleasure. The Word of God tells us that there is a way that seems right unto a man, but in the end, it is the ways of death. Judges chapter 13 begins with this repeated track that we see in the book of Judges. Look at verse 1 with me. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for forty years. Then there was a man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink. And eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came to her husband, said to her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of an angel, like the very angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, You shall conceive and bear a son. So then, drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. So this portrait that we see beginning with the life of Samson 
is the repeated cycle in the book of Judges, isn't it? This, this cycle in the book of Judges is that people forget God. Have you ever been in that time in your life to where things seem to be going really well? And you say, you know what? I don't have time for the Lord any longer. Um, in fact, I've got other things to do. Like the old country song, I've got better things to do. And she talks about washing her car in the rain and so forth and so on. But people forget God. And in order to bring them to repentance, God brings in oppressors, foreign invaders. The people are brought very low. The people realize they're on rock bottom. They begin to cry out to God. And God graciously responds by delivering them from their oppressors. Then things begin to get good. And what do the people forget when the times get good? Forget the Lord. And then he brings in foreign oppressors. And it's this repeating cycle throughout the book of Judges. Now ladies, imagine if you were in her situation. Most of your culture has gone down the drain to the point that very few people worship God. Apparently Manoah and his wife, they served the Lord. They worshipped Him. They sought after God's will. And then you get this appearance from an angel and he tells you, you're barren. You've never been able to have children. And he says, you're going to have a son. And he didn't look like a normal guy. As we'll see, this is probably a theophany, which is a word for where it pictures when God comes in like a human form, the angel of the Lord. Some theologians say that this is Jesus coming to appear in the Old Testament, like he did with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were in the fiery furnace. So she's saying that there's something... This is not your average cookie cutter guy. He looked like the angel of the Lord coming to appear to me. Now guys, what would you say if you were the husband? You say, honey, you've been working out in the field a little bit too long. Did you put on sunscreen? Did you get too hot? Did you wear your your hat to keep the sun off your head? But notice what Manoah does in verse 8. This is so awesome, guys. He's... Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. What an awesome prayer. Now notice in verse 9, And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So again, he gets kept out of the loop. Verse 10, The woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah rose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he says, I am. Verse 12, And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? This, parents, is the model prayer that by God's grace you can pray when God has given you the greatest gift that He could ever give anyone, and that's a child. That's a child. I'm so excited. There's a couple of days next week I'll be able to go see my nephew down in Greenville, South Carolina. We're all going to meet in the middle. And he's almost one years old. Can you all believe that? When he had that heart issue... The holes in his heart. And so many of you prayed for Micah Jordan Robinson. And now the doctors say that he's not going to have any issues. That God has closed that hole. Praise God. Amen. Amen. But when I get videos of that kid. And when I'm with him and to see pictures. It's just. You can't describe that. And I've heard parents. 
talk about what an amazing thing it is to see this, this life that is brought into the world. Parents, I would encourage you to note this in your Bible. That he said, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? The manner of life that you can raise your children and influence your grandchildren is to be raised to follow Jesus Christ. And the point of their life is to bring glory to God. I was talking with a man yesterday. And me and this guy have had conversations before. He is not a Christian. He holds to more of, of a type of Buddhism. And this man has cancer. The health is absolutely going down the tubes. And I sit there talking to him again next to his hospital bed. He looked at me and he says, I said, have you, talk, have you thought any more about giving your life to Jesus? The older that I get, I kind of sound like, you know, you hear people say that. The older I get, I'm 32. I don't know if that's older, young to you or spring chicken, whatever. It was like the older I get, the more direct I want to be. Because life is real and death is coming. And I just, as polite as I could, I said, have you thought any more about giving your life to Jesus? And he looked me in the eye and he says, that is not the plan for my life. It's heartbreaking when you talk to people and they miss it all. Sometimes we, we, well, you shouldn't, but sometimes if somebody has totally missed the dress code at work or at a, at a group party or something like that, or growing up in school, you said, well, they totally missed the mark. Some of you remember in gym class, the kid, or maybe that was you, wasn't very athletic. They couldn't throw the football. When they tried to shoot a free throw, the ball goes over the backboard or under the rim. And you say, man, they missed the mark totally. Some of you remember getting that test back and you thought that you did okay. And you get that F written on there with blood red and it doesn't mean that you did fantastic. And missing the mark. What a sad thing it would be. And this is, and I know it's the middle of the summer. I know we got a lot of stuff going on. People out of town, random things, VBS. But I just, as we walk through the Bible, this is a message from Samson that says every single one of us needs to wake up. Because it's so easy to live your life and miss the point of it. But I praise God that Manoah said, when your words come true. Guys, what an awesome example. And I'll just put this little caveat if you're taking notes. Samson was never the man that his dad was. We don't find any records of Manoah building some great work of architecture or writing some great work of Hebrew philosophy or poetry. Manoah was never used by the Holy Spirit to record and write the words of the Bible. Manoah was not even like Gideon, who was scared at first, but led the men of Israel into battle and defeated the Midianites. He was simply a man who was willing to obey God. And what we're going to see is that sometimes that never passes. Sometimes it doesn't pass from father to son. But one of the things that you men can do is at least ask God to help you model the character of Manoah that is the character of Jesus Christ that says, Thy will be done. What a great picture. I mean, imagine, imagine. You've been together and you're with your wife. You're not able to have children. You don't know what's going on. And the angel of the Lord shows up and said, You're going to have a baby boy. And you say, Well, Lord, I got my notepad. Let me take notes. I've talked to some parents and they say, You know, when that first one comes... Those of you who are parents know what I'm talking about. I mean, you've got you've got everything Lysol. I mean, if if there's a gnat within 50 yards, you, you, you got the husband out there shooting it with a 12 gauge. Like nothing will hurt my child. Got it protected. He's wanting to know 
how he should raise his son. So then Samson, if we flip over to chapter 14, after Manoah gives a sacrifice to the angel of the Lord, and they worship, it says right before chapter 14 in verse 24 of chapter 13, and the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. Kind of like Jesus, right? Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with both God and man. But then in verse or chapter 14, the story begins to pivot. Notice verse 1, chapter 14. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Verse 2. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? In other words, they're saying, Is there not anyone who loves God that you can marry? And notice how Samson responds. He says to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. We see Samson's decline beginning when he resisted the counsel of his parents. And notice in verse number 4, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Now this is a theological, I guess we could see, say a can of worms. He said, hold on Jeff. Samson was the one being arrogant and being rebellious, saying, get her for me. I don't care what you think. She looks good in my eyes. Therefore... No problemo. But the Bible says right here that it was the Lord who was seeking an occasion to bring judgment against the Philistines. So was it Samson choosing this? Or was he a puppet on the string? I think what we see throughout the Bible is that God is so sovereign that He is able to place people in situations knowing that they will choose wrong. But so sovereign and so great is God that He can use the dumb choices of people to produce His perfect will in the end. And not only that, He can use... And this I hope this will be encouraging for those of you who have been sinned against in your life. Deep hurts. God can use the sinful, evil choices of other people, not only to bring about God's will for you, but God can also use even the most twisted decisions to bring about judgment upon those who deserve it. What we'll see throughout this story is that God is so sovereign that He is using Samson's, I guess we could say stupidity. Is that alright with y'all? I mean, honestly, you're, 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 you're spring chicken... You, you got, you know, every, you want to get somebody, you're married, and, and, and you, there's, there's no sense of common sense here. I just want to stop and say, if you're, if you're single, or if you're single again, or if you're married, even if your parents don't walk with Jesus, you can learn something from them. He's saying, hold on Jeff, time out. I grew up in an abusive home. I grew up in a home to where they never prayed, they never read God's Word, maybe we went to church once in a while, but Jesus, are you telling me that I can actually learn something in that context? Yes. And y'all know, when I step to the side of this wall that we have up here, it's important. Y'all know that? Alright. You can learn how to live life by seeing how they lived it wrong. Do you realize that you can learn 
by way of inverting their life and choices, by flipping it around, by seeing how to be a woman or a man of God. If you grew up in a family to where all mom and dad worried about was money, they didn't care about the kids, they provided, they gave stuff to you, but there was no heart love. There was no true relationship. There was nothing like, man, if I get in trouble, if I'm having difficulty, I can go to dad, I can go to mom, and they'll sit down, they'll look me in the eyes and say, tell me, I want to help you. But instead, there was this cold, callous type of emotional distance. Do you realize that you can learn how to be like Jesus by seeing how they did it wrong? But if you don't come to the point in your life where you say, God, I'm not saying that they did the right thing because I know they did the wrong thing. But I'm asking you to give me the ability to release them from that. To forgive them. And God will produce such a compassion in your heart. Because sometimes this is the way that it happens. Some of us in here, if you have your families, you can be raised in an abusive home. And then you swing to the other end of the spectrum where you never discipline your kids at all. You know what the Bible says in the book of Proverbs? It says that he who spares the rod... Americans say spoils his son, but Scripture doesn't say that. It says it hates his son. Why? Because the parent cares more about what the kid thinks about the parent than where the kid is going to be for eternity. The parent cares more about their own feelings and being hurt by the kid saying, I don't like you, mommy, I don't like you, daddy, than whether the kid is going to come against an ultimate authority later down the road. Because children need someone to tell them no. Y'all all right? And when you tell them no, in the right areas, obviously, When you give them guidelines and limits, it gives them a sense of security and freedom because they know that there are certain things that mom and dad care about and they're not willing to allow their child to tread where vipers are. And notice Samson in verse 5 as he continues on. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now this, this is interesting. This is where, like, if you're a kid, you're like, no way! Alright, here it is in the Bible. It says, uh, behold, this is, this is kind of seemingly random. You're like, what? Alright, here we go. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Stop. A little bit random. Right? Like he's going, for those of you that can go back a ways, he's going courting. Alright? He's going courting. He's going to find his woman and a lion comes at him. And then verse 6, this is huge, Theological concept. Verse 6. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed on him. Notice the play on words. Isn't that cool? Hebrew is so awesome. The lion rushes on him. Holy Spirit rushes upon Samson. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. A little bit graphic, but notice how the verse finishes. But he did not tell his father and his mother what he had done. He went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. Do you realize right here that God saved his life? God saved his life in the sense that if you're going and you don't have lion spray, have y'all seen that in some of the uh, sportsmen's magazines, you can buy bear spray? For those of you that are going to go hiking in Alaska this fall, and you say, I got my dirty hairy on my hip, but I I don't want to kill the bear, I just want to spray him with some bear spray. I don't know if I'd trust my life to bear spray, but how do you test it out? I mean, do you get your buddy at work say, Harold, stand right over there. It's bear spray. Man points. And you just blast him and he's in the hospital for five months. I mean, what do you do? So he's here. He has no weapon. And the Spirit of the Lord. Now, if you're taking notes, just write down the phrase, the Spirit of the Lord. And you can go do a search on Google. Pull up a, a free 
concordance that shows you everywhere in the Bible where certain words or phrases are listed. And here's the difference. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of the Lord would rush upon, come upon people for a certain job for a certain time. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes when you get saved, when you repent of your sin and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. This is mind-blowing. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside you. He indwells you. It means if the Holy Spirit had a tent, He says, I'm going to place my tent inside your heart and your soul, and I'm going to build a residence here. I will be within you. Now this is really awesome, not just because it's like a cool theological point, but when you live your life for Jesus Christ, you will need wisdom. Right? I mean, when you have to navigate through people... Can I get an amen in the house this morning? When you have to deal with people, and when you have to deal with drama, you're going to have to say, God, please guide me. He is there with you. Isn't that a great confirmation from the Word of God? But you don't necessarily have... It's like, well, let me find God in the Bible. Yes, He speaks from His Word, but He's within you, illuminating and applying and opening up His Word when you read it. That's awesome. I'm going to get so excited, we're not going to finish the story. But y'all were going to fast for lunch anyway, right? Awesome. Spiritual group. Let's go on. In verse number 8, he breaks his Nazarite vow. He passes back by... Now I'm, this is in the Bible. He, he passes back by the lion's carcass. Like, what in the world? This is random. No, no, no. Get, stay with me. He goes past the carcass, and there, bees have made their home in the carcass. And apparently Samson was the bee master. Maybe he hung out with, um, not Cy Robertson, but Phil Robertson. And he learned how to sweet talk the bees and not get stung. Or maybe he got stung. The text simply doesn't say. But he got handfuls of honey and he brought the honey home to share with his parents. But he didn't tell them that he got it from something unclean. The Nazarite was not to drink any alcohol, even anything from the fruit of the vine. Like even, even unfermented grape juice. He was not to have his hair cut. He was not to have anything to do with an unclean animal or with anything that was dead. Now notice, Samson's life is already showing signs of being led by his desires, isn't he? The Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 2 that it's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. He's already following the lust of the eyes. He says, she looks good to me. Get her for me. He's following the lust of the flesh. Instead of saying, God will provide, he does what seems good. And then in this doomed marriage from the start, he tries to go down the line of the pride of life. He gives this, I guess you could say it's a bet. It was a riddle. And long story short, it was the riddle about the lion. They couldn't figure it out. So they told his wife-to-be that if you don't figure out what the answer is, we're going to lose this bet of 30 changes of clothing, which is very expensive back in that time, that we're going to kill you. Ends up, she tells them, and then he says a phrase that I would say that no man here should ever repeat. He says in verse number 18, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Now, I'm not married, but I'm just thinking out on a limb that you probably wouldn't want to call your wife-to-be a heifer. 
It's this type of crass idea, and see, none of y'all want to laugh because it's not socially acceptable to do. That's something that comes across in our culture so offensive. You say, why, why would you even say something like that? Samson was a man already characterized by crassness, by a lack of love, and a lack of selfishness. So guess what he does? He takes some revenge, and he, he gets 300 foxes together, and he ties their tails and lights a fire and turns them loose and it burns down the wheat fields. And then he goes and he finds 30 Philistine men and he kills them, takes their clothing to pay the bet that he actually lost. The story gets even more crazy. They're in chapter 15 and verse number 6. This is The Bible is not condoning this. The Bible is exposing this. Then in that time, the morality had gotten to such a point that it was equal to the Canaanites. And the men, the leaders of the Philistines, got his wife-to-be and her father and burned them alive to their death. Notice how he responds in verse number 7. Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be revenged, avenged on you, and after that I will quit. He goes, he kills Philistines, then... They're so afraid of him, they send 3,000 in verse 11 of his own men to arrest him. 3,000 men of Judah. And they come and they say, will you go with us? And he says, if you promise not to harm me, I will go with you. Now stop for just a second. How much fear do you have to have of one man to send 3,000 to bring him in? Stop and let that sink in for just a moment. And then when they hand him over to the Philistines, in verse number 14, it says, And then the Spirit of the Lord, once again, rushed on him, and the ropes on his arms became as flax and caught fire, and the bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, took it in his hand, and killed a thousand men. And right after this, Samson cries out to God, basically saying, God, how could you have left me? God gives him a great victory, but yet he gives up based upon his own thirst. Chapter 16, the story gets even more difficult to read. Verse 1, he went to Gaza and there saw a prostitute and went into her. There's a statement that C.S. Lewis makes about sex outside of marriage. He says, the physical union between a man and a woman will be eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. It is God's plan, one one woman, one man, for life. And as long as I'm your pastor... Because I love people, and because this church loves people enough to tell them the truth, we have to say in love that it is God's plan for faithfulness between a man and a woman. Because we love people. And if you or I come across in a crass manner as if we're better than someone, may God convict our hearts. Amen, church? And it's because we love people that we must warn them of what brings destruction. So here's what his story begins to end. He heads to the valley of Sorek and he finds a woman whose name was Delilah. She convinces him to tell her the secret of his strength. He begins to basically pull her strings and he gives her several stories. says, well, if you bind me with seven bowstrings, that will take away my strength. They do that, the Philistines come in, he breaks the seven bowstrings, and if you've ever tried to pull a bowstring apart, it'll make your hands bleed. Don't try it. And I know some of you tough guys will go home, that's what you're going to do right after church, but when your hands come in bleeding, I told you so. Not only that, 
She says, she comes back and says, oh, you're just playing around with me. Tell me truly where your strength lies. And he says, if you bind me with new ropes, then my power will be taken away. He falls asleep there with Delilah. She binds him with new ropes. The guys come in to try to kill him. He breaks the ropes, kills the guys. And then finally, this is kind of weird, he says, you weave the seven locks of my hair into a loom. And that will take away my power. Does it work? And finally, the Bible tells us in chapter 16, in verse number 16, And when she had pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed or, pro- or troubled to death. Then he told her all that was in his heart. Literally, literally, not the phrase that we so often use. Literally, she drove him crazy. To the point that he says, even if I have to give her my secret, it's better than having to deal with this. And he says that if you shave my head, I will lose my power. And notice this is one of the saddest verses I wrote down in my notes. The saddest verses in all the Bible. The end of verse number 20. And he awoke from his sleep. This is after his head was shaved. And I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know the Lord had left him. How far away from Jesus Christ do you have to be to where you don't even know whether he's there or whether he's left? And they come in. They bind him. They gouge out his eyes. They put him in bronze shackles. This was the first period of the Bronze Age for those of you historical scholars. The titanium of the day. And they put him pushing a mill in a circular pattern as an animal would. And Samson lost everything. Now, so you say, Jeff, that's kind of a, a crazy story. What does it mean? How does it apply? What do we do with this Old Testament story? Let me give you three responses on how you destroy your life. That, that's really encouraging, right? Let me, let me give you number one. If you want to destroy your life, You reject the wisdom of God-given authority. He did not accept at all the cautions of his parents that says, isn't there a woman who loves God? Now, often this happens with relationships to where people become lonely. And if you're lonely here today, whether you're married, whether you're single, or whether you're single again, I want to let you know that Rocky Mount Baptist is, is is a place and a church that accepts you, and you can find friends here in the gospel. Amen, church? This is a friendly church that is willing to reach out to people. But it's a lot better to be lonely now than get with the wrong person and then be lonely later having to deal with all the baggage that comes from a wrong relationship. Secondly, if you want to destroy your life, You trust in your own desires and feelings as good and always act on those own desires and feelings. Samson was led by the lust of the eyes. Remember his his modus operandi, his mode of operation was, she looks good, get her for me. She looks good in my what? Eyes. What did Samson end up losing? His eyes. Actually calls us to take a step back and say, maybe when we read Jesus' words in the New Testament, 
when he says that if your eye offends you, pluck it out and cast it from you. Jesus is not talking about self-mutilation. But he's saying if there is something that is so enticing, that leads us away from God, leads us into destruction, do whatever you have to do to squeeze off the oxygen supply. There's an incredible book, guys. It's called Sex, Men, and God by Douglas Weiss. He's a biblical counselor. And he says one of the things that you can begin to put inside your heart if any of you men here are struggling with pornography, and the statistics say that a majority of men, even in the church, do. This is a very sensitive subject. But something I was reading in this book, I said, this is brilliant. He says, every time you're tempted to lust after a woman, begin to pray for her and pray for her children that already are here or the children that will come. And it's very difficult to go down the road of lust if you're praying for someone. Trust your own feelings. Samson kind of had the I got this disease. You ever been with somebody and maybe the car is broken down and they don't know how to fix the car, but they don't want anybody else to tell them how? You say, do you need some help? I got this. Flat tire. Trying to put it together. Well, do you need a jack? I got this. It's like, well, you can't lift up the car and fix the tire at the same time. You need some help. Let it be in our lives that we're willing to look for help. Amen, church? Willing to be humble. Willing to get with people in a small group Bible study and just be real. Samson wouldn't do that and it destroyed his life. He simply did whatever he felt like. And he lost his eyes and he lost his freedom. And number three, if you want to destroy your life, make sure that all the battles you wage are for your own personal happiness and benefit and gain. Notice here in verse number 28, when Samson's hair had grown back and when he was placed there in the middle of the Philistine, it was this large building, he was going to try to push the pillars so it would crush all of them. Notice how self-centered he still is. Verse 28. And Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistine for my two eyes. You see, even at the point of death, even when God had come back and brought him back, he still was focused on himself. You see, Jeff, what should we do with this? You've given us the other side. Where's the hope? Very quickly. How does Jesus differ from Samson? Well, Jesus voluntarily subjected himself to God-given authority, even though he had the right to do whatever he wanted. Right? I mean, isn't that who Jesus is? Jesus had all power. He could do all things. He had all glory unto himself. But yet, in Ephesians or Philippians chapter 2, Jesus emptied himself to become as one of us. Secondly, Jesus trusted in God's word over his physical desires. What did Jesus do when he was tempted? Did Jesus try to have a debate with himself? Did Jesus try to outthink Satan? Although he still could. No, Jesus says it is written. Jesus' response when pressed. And some of you say, Jeff, man, it seems like in my life I'm like this orange and I'm getting squeezed from every which direction. I heard one Bible teacher say something that still sticks with me. He said that our heart is like an orange. That whatever is in there and you squeeze it, it's going to come out. They did this really cool illustration where they had carved out a small portion of the orange and they were able to gut it and they put black ink inside. And they had these two oranges that looked the same and they squeezed one, orange juice came out, squeezed the other one, and then just this black putrid substance came out. And they said, whatever is inside will come out when you get squeezed. But for Jesus Christ, our model, our Savior, and our Lord, 
He was tempted physically to, to basically make the power of God into some type of a magic circus show. Turn these stones into bread. And Jesus says, it is written that man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And finally, Jesus died for his enemies and Jesus won. Back in chapter 13 and Verse 5, it says that Samson will begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. But Jesus did not just begin to save, Jesus saves. Amen, church? He can save anyone who comes to Him. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I think it's very interesting when we look here at Samson's final prayer. His final words are, let me die with the Philistines. And before that he says, let me take revenge from my two eyes. What a contrast to Jesus, right? Jesus' last words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirits. And then when Jesus had been raised from the dead, he was talking to the disciples and he said, Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. Jesus' rule, Jesus' commands are not burdensome. You see, church, I think often Samson in his life said, well, I've got to do my own thing. It seems like all of this was chosen for me. I didn't ask to be a Nazarite. I didn't ask for this. But when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, he gives us freedom. There's a friend of mine at the seminary. Seminary is a place where pastors, missionaries, teachers go to learn God's word, philosophy, original languages. It's a, it's a nerve fest, but hopefully it's a Jesus fest at the same time. A friend came up to me, really in shape guy. We'll just, we'll just call him John. It's not his real name. We'll just call him John. And he comes up to me and says, Jeff, I need to talk to you. He's a, he's a student in seminary trained to be a pastor. And he says, i got to go pregnant. I said, let's talk. And he begins to tell me this story about how he had always been in church, involved in everything. But he says, you know, Jeff, honestly, I just, I'm trying to remember this. I got tired of being good. I got tired of being good. And where I was a personal trainer, I began to date and pursue a girl that did not know Jesus Christ. And today she's pregnant. What do I do? We begin to talk about it. Hopefully gave me some biblical guidance. But I pray, I pray that the state of our hearts, and if it's that way this morning, God can change that. But is Jesus not enough? Are we good for goodness sake, like good little boys and girls? And is Jesus Santa Claus that he comes and gives us presents? I mean, is it that we get tired of being good? How can we get tired of Jesus who has given us everything? And he's given us a world to win. He's given us a community to love. He's given us a chance to be involved with bringing back together couples and families that have been separated by court order. He's giving us a chance to reach precious little children here in a couple of weeks in VBS. He's going to give us more chances in the future to do ministry here in Rocky Mount, Virginia. He gives us the chance, and I praise God for chairman of the deacons that goes to the jail and shares Jesus. Amen? I'm not trying to embarrass Ben, but I know so many churches, and the deacons don't do anything to serve. I praise God to serve with men who actually do serve. We're going to have chances to serve Jesus, but in the midst of that, there can be the tendency to if we've been wounded by church, if you come from a legalistic church background, or you've been mistreated by someone who claims to love Jesus, don't let that creep into your heart to where you just are good out of goodness sake. Let it be that you say, Jesus, I'm living to serve you. And let the last words of your life be, 
like Pastor Johnny Hunt, he says what he wants on his tombstone is one word, others. Others. Samson's tombstone, if he had one, would have one word, me. And he wasted and destroyed a life that could have been one of the greatest heroes in the Old Testament because his eyes were turned inward. Let us turn our eyes out.